0: Twenty-seven years ago, uh, Marcy and I moved with our two little tiny kids (laughs) to uh, Olympia. And um, that year, I met a curly-headed kid named Joel and uh, loved him, appreciated him. Uh, That year, he married his wife, Lila, who uh, is from here in Olympia. And uh, it wasn't very long before they were gone back to Israel where Joel has uh, began, not has begun, began quite some time ago at uh, a youth ministry. And uh, it's just a privilege to welcome Joel this morning. I haven't seen him in years. Um, and uh, he's, he's a little more mature than the last time I saw him.
1: <laughs> but uh,
0: love this guy and uh, didn't want to miss the opportunity to to have him share with you about his ministry in Israel because it's just so exciting. So Joel, would you come? Welcome Joel Goldberg, everybody.
1: Thank you. Well, familiar faces and beloved um, people that have been uh, with us for so many years. Um, and although we live in Israel, we come back and we feel at home here, not only because Lila's parents, they're here visiting today, but, uh, that there's many here who we've connected with and loved throughout the years. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for the opportunity to share. Um, yeah, well, 27 years ago, <sighs> 27 years ago, I was 23 and, uh. Lila and I met in Bible school in England. I followed her out here and um, just felt like God was leading us into youth ministry. And at the time, we started doing a youth work, first time here in Olympia, um, that God has opened up the door for me to be involved in youth ministry. Anyways, we got married. We finished our studies, went back to Israel. Um, we have four children, Abigail, Sean, Matan and Amiel, um, with the years it got more a little more difficult to say the names uh, for the English speakers, but in uh, this year <clears throat> I turned 50 and I'm a grandfather, so yeah, who would have believed that curly headed kid is now a grand- grandfather, I guess I need to grow up, if you ask Lita how many children she has, she'll say five, <clears throat> I don't know what that means about me having to grow up or not. Maybe so. Anyways, don't waste my time. Um, well, as we headed back uh, to Israel, I was a graphic artist for many years. Um, and we felt that, that God has opened up doors for us to be involved in youth ministry. And through the years of doing youth ministry, um, we felt like God is leading us to full-time youth ministry in Israel. Israel is a young state, young country, 71 years old, and since 1948, um, the body of believers has, has begun growing, and in the last, I would say, 30 years, uh, the community of the Messianic Jewish believers in Israel has has just grown and, and expanded. In fact, in the last 10 years, the number of believers in Jesus in Israel has doubled, yeah it 's connected to we have a lot of kids, and another thing is we have uh, we have a growing um, flow of immigrants that come to Israel, but as well as the gospels being shared, and people are turning their lives to the lord and we 're we're, we're finding um, that the younger generation are needing more and more uh, support and encouragement. When I was growing up, um, when I was a teenager, a national youth gathering had maybe 25 teenagers from a national on a national level. Today, if we if we count the amount of kids that come to our conferences, we have about 360 kids showing up regularly to our conferences. But that that's just a portion of the kids. We're actually ministering to about 1,300 teenagers or young people that are. Teenagers all the way from mm, junior high to finishing the military. Um, And we feel like as a ministry, we're reaching out to these uh, young men and women and kids. Um, So like I said, the body of believers is growing. There's such a need. But yet still, uh, many of these teenagers are the only believer in their school, the only believer in their unit. At the age of 18, they go into the army. Um, and they're needing to serve um, the country. But we believe that they're not only going to serve the country and do their duty, but they are called to be a light and a testimony in the military where they are. And yes, um, uh, serving in the military is like, I've said this before, a spiritual desert. But... People can exist and thrive in the desert. They just need to know where the water is. And that's what we, do. we, we believe that God's called us to provide places where they can be fed, where can, they can be nourished, where can an oasis, where they can stop, rest, be replenished and strengthened in their faith again. So this is what we're doing with our young men and women that are serving the IDF. Together with that, we feel like we need to prepare our young men and women before they go into the Army. Because just like your teenagers here finishing high school, we just talked about a group of these kids. They're going into college and they're going into the university. Do they know how to deal with the struggles, with the challenges that they're going to face in the university? Do they know how to defend their faith? Do they know not just what they believe, but why they believe what they believe do they know how to answer us a calculated and wise answer to the questions that the, the social issues that this world is dealing with do they know how to look at scripture and the bible and give a good answer of why they believe what they believe you see for for a young man growing up in israel um, and Israel is a schizophrenic country, right because we have on one hand the extreme religious and on the other hand the extreme um, atheist and liberal and our kids are needing to deal with both these worlds they 're needing to answer questions of uh, why not homosexuality and what our what our views about homosexuality is as believers because if you believe in God and you be believe believe the Bible, then you must be narrow-minded and, and racist towards other types of people. On the other hand, um, we're rejected for our faith in Jesus because the, for as long as the Jews are concerned, if we believe in Jesus, we're no longer Jewish. Although we know that biblically that our faith in Jesus is the fulfillment of what it means to be the people of God. Even even ethnic Israel today. Amen. Yeah. So, what are we doing? We're training. We're educating. We're 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 um, supporting leaders in Israel, the community, um, leadership, youth leaders, pastors, elders that are serving. Um, encouraging them in all, all this whole area of youth ministry. We are also preparing young boys and girls that are finishing high school, getting ready to go into university, talking about values, talking about ethics, talking about where they stand and and not just what they believe, but why they believe what they believe and how can they defend it. You know, in Jude chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, it says that, J- Jude says, I was going to write to you about the unity that we have, but I was urged to talk to you about contend earnestly for your faith, and I think that a lot of our young men and women, and I think here in America too, are lacking the tools to know how to defend our faith, and They get into university, they get into the college, they go into the military, and they 're all of a sudden bombarded with things that they never thought about or don 't know how to defend, and then they, they fade away, their faith diminishes. And they they become, they're scared to speak out and to be bold. Um, scripture calls our children that their arrows, our youth, are like arrows in the hand of the warrior. But an arrow needs to be sharpened. An arrow needs to be prepared. An arrow needs to be um, straight before we send it out into the battlefield. By the way, an arrow is an offensive weapon, not a defensive weapon. That means our kids are gonna be instruments to carry the truth, to pierce this world with the truth. And are they ready? And in Israel this is what we're doing. We're working hard. We're working amongst the Messianic community in order to strengthen them and build them up. Um, the name of the ministry is Netiva. Netiva means pathway. Um, and what we want to do is actually see the young men and women flourishing. It says in Isaiah 43, "Thus says the Lord who makes a pathway through the mighty water. that's the Hebrew sentence. And then it says, "Behold I'm doing a new things: water in the desert, streams in the wilderness. God is restoring Israel, but he's restoring the hearts of the people First. And we want to see our young men and women growing up strong and bold in their faith, so that they can be sharing and be a light and a testimony in the country. Um, here's there, there's a short video. Um, do you have it? Cool. <clears throat> and that will explain a bit more about what you're doing. Thank you. Hello. I'm Joel, and I'm the Founder and Director of Nativa Youth Ministry. Um, I just want to share with you a bit about what we're doing with Nativa here in Israel. We're here in order to encourage and support and build the body of believers in Israel. And this time I'd like to introduce you to some of the young people that we're serving.
0: So, Hi, my name is Hannah. There is uh, several youth conferences for boys, girls, all the youth together. And uh, for me Nativa is always an opportunity to step out of the daily routine for a moment, grow spiritually and fellowship.
1: Hello, my name is Jonathan and I want to tell you about CDC. CDC is a hike that you go from the Mediterranean Sea to the Sea of Galilee. Do- during the hike you have time to talk with other believers and you-, you have time to make new friends, something that we usually don't have in our daily life here in Israel. Nativa also has youth leader conferences. It's where they teach youth leaders to work with us, the youth here in Israel. Hey, I'm Oz and I'm part of Net TV. Net TV is a YouTube show for the Israeli youth that believes in Yeshua. So basically what we do here, we meet, we read apart from the scripture, we learn about media, and then we go out, use the stuff that we learn to film videos, upload them and encourage the youth here with the walk with Yeshua. Hello, my name is Itai. Um, I got to be a part of a youth conference in Germany, called LTC. It was a really good time to meet a German youth, um, and to worship together, to get uh, to know each other, and to come together as a youth believer in the Yeshua. I also got to be a part of a conference in the Sea of Galilee, Walk on Water. It's a conference with youth uh, from all over Israel, it was a good time to be together and to, to be connected just because we believe in Yeshua, and it was a great time. Hey, I'm Netanel. I'm 21 years old and I'm a paratrooper. I joined the IDF over than two years ago. Before I joined the IDF, I went to Netzov. Netso is a 10 days pre-military program that prepares young youth for the serving military emotionally, physically, and most important, spiritually.
0: Hello, my name is Teyla, And I'm Noam. We're sisters. Um, I serve in the combat unit called Kfir. I'm a logistics officer.
1: And I'm in the education unit. I teach new immigrants Hebrew and I prepare them for the army.
0: As growing up, we've been participating in Etivaz conferences. The most highlight for me has been the soldiers' conferences. I've been going for about two and a half years now. Um, It's so important for us to gather around as soldiers, meet each other, understand that we're going through the same hardships. Uh, pray together for the other soldiers that don't know God, don't know our Savior. And I had
1: the privilege of taking a part of Khatim, which is a pre-military uh, program that develops leadership and discipleship. I am so happy that I got to take a part of this program. It really taught me how to um, combine the Army life with my faith life and how to go through the Army in the best way and how to develop my faith even through the Army. Thank you for taking a moment and watching this video with us. Pray for them. Pray for them to grow and to mature in their walk and their faith in the Lord. Pray for us at Netiva as we continue to serve the body of believers in Israel to see the growth and maturity of these young men and women.
0: So cool, man. That's just awesome. How many of you think that you might Seriously be interested in taking a trip to Israel in 2020. Anybody here that would say, yeah, I'd jump on that? Okay. All right. Very good. We're going to think about doing something like that. So that'd be exciting, huh? Hey, I want to just remind you, we're just 12 days away now to till, till closing on, on the church property, the South Sound Community Church campus, and... um that's exciting. Lots of stuff going on. Um, you may have noticed my Facebook post this week, if you're on our Facebook uh, page, our Facebook group, um, <clears throat> that we're about about 30,000 short of our goal for that date in terms of our giving to Vision Next. And uh, if you are able, and I know that not everyone can do this, um, and so this isn't pressure, guilt, or anything, but if you were able to accelerate your giving towards Vision Next uh, to get us closer to that 300,000 mark uh, by a week and a half from now, we would be so grateful, and that would really put us right where we need to be. John Davis is doing a tremendous, tremendous job as our project manager on this, and it's very exciting to be a a part of, uh, of all that's going on. We are going to get into God's Word this morning for, for a little while. We're in uh, Romans 6 this morning in our, our series through Romans. Our title this morning is Alive in Christ, and uh, as is our tradition, let's stand and read our scripture together. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. This is God's word. You may be seated. By the way, I can't pass up the opportunity. Yesterday was my daughter Lauren's birthday, and she's back there, and you can wish her a happy birthday. Um, Also, Joel is going to be here after the service, and if you have questions about his ministry and would like to just engage him, I'm sure he would love to talk with you. Well, I'm going to move quickly. In the first part of chapter 6, where we were last week, Paul began a response to a question from an imaginary critic. And Paul didn't just make up critics. This is a a form of teaching that, you know, poses an imaginary question from an imaginary questioner in order to make a point. And so the question that that Paul is is answering is this. If where sin increases, grace superabounds, why not persist in sin. If where sin increases, grace superabounds, why not persist in sin? And that question arises from Paul's statement in chapter 5, verse 20, where he said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Literally, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. And so the thought is, well, if that's true, if, if God's grace just covers all of our sin, if my sin increases, his grace increases to cover it, why not just keep on sinning? And Paul replies to the question with what we labeled last week the moral objection. It's just a simple label we put on it. And it's in verse 2, by no means, Paul answers, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And it's a powerful response, by no means. Perish the thought, Paul's saying. What a ghastly thought, J.B. Phillips translates it. Cotton patch version, hell no. Shall we continue in sense that the grace may increase? No, no, a thousand times no. And then in verse And he asks, how can we who died to sin still live in it? We died. So it's incongruous to to even think about the fact that we would continue in sin that we died to. And then in verses 3 to 7, Paul develops the thought that when a person transfers their trust from, from their morality, their religion, their best efforts to Jesus Christ and his accomplishment at the cross and his death and his resurrection, they are united with him. By faith. There's a a union that takes place with Christ that didn't exist before. Not something you can just assume. Not something you can hope for. But but in fact, by faith, we are, Paul says, united with Christ. And the first occurrence, the first event in that union is that the person uh, is united with Christ in his death. Having died with Christ then, we are also united with him in his resurrection, raised to newness of life. And both those events, Paul says, are graphically symbolized in baptism. We talked about that last week. In verse 5, he made the hopeful statement that sets up the second half of his response that we're considering this morning, when he said, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly... What does certainly mean? It means certainly. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. But before he pivots to to really getting into the second half of his answer, he states boldly here, we know, we know, we know that our old self was crucified with Christ. In verses 6 and 7, he asserts the effect of that crucifixion. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. What Paul is saying here, I think, is that the old person that you were, before you transferred your trust to Christ, has been done away with by your faith, by your union with Christ through faith. When Christ died, you died with him. You enter into his death by faith. So that the old person, in terms of your position before God, the old person that you were has died and next he says that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, meaning that this body through which we, we, sin is expressed, whether through a physical action or mental intellectual thought or emotion or speech, whatever it is, it comes through our body. He says that the body ruled and dominated by sin has now been robbed of its power to condemn you. The body of, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, nullified, robbed of its power. And as a result of that, you're no longer a slave to sin. You have been set free. And the major emphasis in verses 2 to 7 is on the fact that your union with Christ by faith, through your union with Christ by faith, you died with him. Through your union by faith, his death became yours. And because you died, that old slave master, Sin, lost one of his slaves. And Sin is no longer your slave master. In verses 8 to 14, then, the major emphasis is on the fact, and this is the second half of his, his answer, the major emphasis is on the fact that in your union with Christ by faith, You are now raised with him to new life. You died with him. That's the first part of the answer. The second part of the answer is you've been raised with him to newness of life. And he he takes us to the implications of that fact. And we're talking about positional truth here now. And and you're going to argue back with this, and I'm going to help you argue back. But we're talking about a position in Christ. And he says, first of all, we believe that we will also live with Christ. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, remember where Paul is going and what he's trying to accomplish here. He's... he's his goal is to help us understand why, if sin increases, if where sin increases, grace increases more, it, it superabounds, we shouldn't persist in habitual, unrestrained sin. And his short answer is that our death and our resurrection with Christ render it inconceivable, incongruous, inconsistent with our new status, our new identity, that we should ever go back to that old life. We may make short visits. Right, But we can never go back to stay. We can never go back and make that our home. It's no longer who we are. We no longer own the address. And as we saw last week, when a Christian sins, he or she is acting against her own, his or her own basic identity. And we might ask here where, whether Paul's statement, we will also live with him, which is written in the future tense, speaks of the future in regard to or in relationship to that moment of our death with Christ. From that point on, we we live with him. Or of the future as we look forward to it from the present moment, which would be uh, our death. So if it's from the moment of our death with Christ, then he's speaking of the life of Christ that we share in now. Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come that they may have life may have it abundantly. He said to Nicodemus, if God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life, life that never ends. So when did it begin? Did it begin at the moment of our faith or does it begin when we die and go to heaven? And we can't really say precisely what Paul had in mind because both are true in both our emphases in Paul's writing. What we can say is that it's unlikely that Paul would have thought of the one without the other and, and that this whole thought of everlasting life corresponds with abundant life. It's, it's not just quantity of life, but it's quality of life. It's intensity of life, if you will. In chapter 8, which we'll get into in good time, Paul will write that because the Holy Spirit lives in you, your spirit is alive. Now. And then he goes on, he says, and he will give life to your mortal bodies. So there's both those thoughts are there. John Stott, commenting on this passage, wrote that life is resurrection anticipated. And resurrection is life consummated. And it's all life. It's all life. In verse 9, Paul goes on, he says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now, now remember, he's, he, he's wanting us to think about our union with Christ by faith, and so he's talking about now the death of Christ. And we can have confidence in the continuing eternal nature of our new life because of Christ's resurrection. We can have this confidence because as we saw when we talked about this on Easter Sunday, we talked about the, tried to answer the question whether it's, you know makes sense to believe in a resurrection. <clears throat> Jesus wasn't resuscitated and brought back to this life. Praise God for that. Because if he had been, then he, like Lazarus, would have had to die again. And the witness of Scripture is that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. Never to die again. He was raised to an entirely new quality of life. Never to return to life as he, as he knew it. And because by his death, Jesus was delivered from the tyranny, the harassment of sin. By his resurrection, he's been delivered from death's power, death's control, death's dominion, death's jurisdiction, if you will, Forever. There's a place in Revelation, chapter 1, verse 18, where the risen, glorified Christ says this of himself, I am the living one, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. Paul goes on in verse 10, he says, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. I think it would be easy to pass over this verse. It's kind of one of those verses you go, yeah, I kind of get what that means, so let's just move on. <laughs> but I think it's a mistake to do that because it's such an important statement Paul is making here. It has, it has significance not only for our understanding of the work that Christ did at the cross, but also it has significance for our understanding of our life in him and our discipleship. There are three differences between the two events of Jesus' death and resurrection. There's, first of all, a difference of time in the the past event of his death death and the, the present experience of his life. There's a difference of nature in the fact that he died to sin, bearing its penalty for us. And now he lives to God, seeking the glory of God. And there's a difference of quality. In his once for all death and his resurrection, that resurrection life that goes on forever and ever. In the same way, as we again, we're thinking about our union with Christ by faith. In the same way, by that union, our discipleship begins with a once for all death to sin. And it it continues in an unending life of worship and service to God, but we're, which we are freed to do. By faith, we're united with Christ. Our old selves died with him to sin. The penalty of our sin was absorbed by Christ's once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. Praise God. This is one thought that has just captured me over the last couple of years. The once-for-all death of Christ. Not that I hadn't heard of it forever and ever before that, but but it's just so captured me. The once for all death of Christ. That, that Christ, the high priest Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews says, unlike the other priests that offered sacrifices day after day after day that could never take away sins, this high priest Jesus offered one sacrifice for sin for all time and sat down, his work finished. On that day that he died, our sin was dealt with once for all. We've risen again with Christ to live a new life. Free to worship and serve him. Our old life ended with that judicial death that it deserved. We've been talking about that judicial death. We've been talking about justification as a judicial verdict. And, and the death was a judicial death. It had to happen. The wages of sin is death. We're going to see that at the end of this chapter next week. Our new life begins with a resurrection. We're raised with Christ. And because that's true, Paul wants us to know that we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin alive to God in Christ Jesus. We've seen this word consider before in in our study of Romans, but it was translated a little differently because of context. But it's that word logizomai. In the Greek, it's the word from which we get our words logic and logical. It means to synthesize information and take it to its logical end. Today, we might say, well, just do the math. Or we might say, just connect the dots. And Paul's saying, if you've been paying attention, here's the logical conclusion at which you must arrive. You are dead to sin and you're alive to God. And you say, well, that's hard for me to even fathom because I don't feel dead to sin. But but again, this is not about how you feel. This is not, this is not experiential stuff. This is, this is your position in Christ because of what Christ did. And so the consideration, considering yourselves dead to sin is not make-believe. It's not pretending. It's not talking yourself into something that you really don't believe. It's not pretending that your old nature has died when we know perfectly well that it has not. Instead, we're to realize and never forget that our former self did die with Christ and so give it a good funeral and move on volume one of your life is over volume two has begun It's, it's inconceivable Paul's saying that you would go back and reopen volume one as if you had not died with Christ and been resurrected with him anybody here see the Lion King you have to you have to everybody's seen it right Remember that moment where Mufasa says to Simba in his James Earl Jones voice, Simba, remember who you are. Remember that? Love that moment. Always gave me goosebumps. Simba, remember. Remember who you are. That's what Paul is saying. Remember who you are. Remember, Remember what Christ has done for you. And remember that when you trusted in him, his death became yours. His resurrection became yours. You were raised to newness of life. Remember who you are. In, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of the struggles of life, remember who you are. Again, to consider ourselves dead to sin doesn't mean that we will not or cannot sin. We, we know that we will and we know that we can. <laughs> Boy, do we know that, don't we? Nor does it mean that we, we won't struggle with habitual sins. You and I each have grooves of sin that we fall into on a regular basis. Some people would say that the sign that someone is dead is you know, dead to sin is sinlessness. In fact, in First John 3, 9, we read this, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. And you look at that and go, oh, crud, right? And yet, elsewhere in the same letter, John says that no Christian can ever claim to be without sin. It's as if we we claim we have no sin, we lie, and the truth is not in us. We're we're going to see in Romans seven that Paul still describes Christians as having sin. In fact, he, he owns that struggle, and he says, you know, you read chapter seven. It's, it's that place where he says, you know, the good things I want to do, I don't do, and the very things I hate, those are the things I find myself doing over and over again. And he ends it. He says, "Oh, wretched man that I am! <laughs> I'm a mess." Who will deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sin still has power over us, but to remember who and what we are in Christ, dead to sin and alive to God, means that we can't persist in deliberate sin. We we can't persist in sin without sensing that deep inner conflict between the person we are. The person we were and the person we now are. And I think that's what Paul's expressing in Romans 7. That Just that, that incredible tension. And he goes on in verse 12 and says, Because I've been brought from death to life, I can choose not to let sin keep on ruling my life. I have a choice about sin. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. To make you obey its passions. Any of you have a, or any of you bullied as a kid on the playground? Maybe you were the bully. Paul's saying sin's a bully. It it wants to push you around. It, It makes you, it intends to make you do what it wants you to do. Make you obey its passions. Sin's like a bully, but you've died to it. You don't have to let it push you around anymore. In that moment, you can say, Sin, that person you used to push around, that person's dead, no longer here. Not answering the phone. You have a choice. Well, how do we act on that opportunity to choose? Paul says there are two sides to that. He says, first of all, we're no longer to present ourselves to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Verse 13a, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Members. What are our members? It's our body, it's our mind, it's our tongue. They're sexual organs, it's it's all all that we are, all the ways that we can get ourselves into a, a sinful mess. Those are those are our members. And he says, so so stop doing that. You have a choice. You don't have to go on saying, Okay, sin, here I am. All right. Struggle over. Secondly, he says the flip side of that is we're to present ourselves to God as instruments for righteousness present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness what are you doing with your body what are you doing with your members what are you doing with your tongue what are you doing with your with your mind your eyes your nose your mouth your your ears what are you doing with your body There in verse 13, sin is personified. That word translated instruments can also be translated weapons. And some have interpreted Paul as per- personifying sin as a military commander to whom it would be possible to offer our bodies and minds as weapons. And it doesn't take very long to kind of wrap your mind around that. Yeah, I can become a weapon. Joel talked about arrows. Our children like arrows. We can be weapons. And that, that would be in keeping with some of Paul's military references elsewhere, especially with his teaching on spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. So stop presenting your members as weapons to the military commander that you, you no longer serve. But present your members to God, your new commanding officer, as weapons for righteousness. So it raises a question. The question really is very simple. Whose side are you on? Whose side are you choosing to be on? Because the choice is yours. Verse 14 finally says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. We're going to see this more as we move on next week. But law and grace are the opposing principles of of the old order and the new order of Adam's family and Christ's family. To be under law is to accept the obligation to keep it. And that's the funny thing when people say, well, I'll I'll just do this my way. Well, good luck with that. Because the minute you, you say, oh, I'm going to do it my way, I don't need Jesus. I'm going to do it my way. Paul says, and he taught, taught us this earlier, he says you, you, you immediately put yourself under the condemnation of, of the law of God and the law of conscience, which, by the way, you can't keep that one either. And, and you put yourself under the law of your religion, of whatever laws are apart. All that gets stacked on you, and it just condemns you. So good luck with that. To be under grace is to to simply acknowledge that you're a loser apart from Christ. You're you're totally dependent on the work of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And so to be justified rather than condemned and then set free. And the, the scandal of this whole thing is that God says... Of Abraham and of us. He believed God and it was reckoned to him. It was was counted to him, logizomai, as righteousness. Justified before God. So shall we continue in sin so that grace may superabound? Paul says, no, no, no. You don't go back. You can't go back. It's not who you are anymore. John Stott, one of my theological heroes, wrote this in his commentary on Romans, grace lays upon us the responsibility of holiness. The responsibility because it's the responsibility of who we now are in Christ. You don't have to go back to sin. (laughs) You don't have to let it kick you around anymore. You can choose. You can choose to put your faith in Christ Die, be raised with him, so that sin no longer has any mastery, no dominion, no power, no control, no jurisdiction over you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for this morning. What a, what a great morning we've had together. Lord, would you just uh, cause these things to sink down deeply into our hearts and minds. Allow us to reflect on them. I pray for our life groups this week as they... Uh, discuss these things, and um, Lord, give them great insight, and um, Lord, thank you for what you're doing in our church. We, we pray for the uh, these last days before the closing of our on the property, and then all that lies ahead over the summer of renovating that property, and we just pray your blessing, and uh, Lord, help us to walk in step with you, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.